0: Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I am your host, Sam Kasten-Smith, and with me, as he is again, <laughs> a director of student ministries, Will Bushman. Take two. Take two. All right, so we are moving in to the second half of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Uh, where we finished in the last episode is right where Jesus is telling his disciples that they will all fall away. Peter insists, no, I never will, and then Jesus says, you're going to deny me before the rooster quows. You're, you're, you're going to deny me three times. And so they leave there from the Mount of Olives, and they go to a place called Gethsemane. So to understand this, the Mount of Olives is the, the big hill or mountain that's to the east of the Temple Mount, Gethsemane is kind of at the foot of the Mount of Olives. It's right when you're coming down into the Kidron Valley, and there's an olive grove there, which is, Will and I have both been there.
1: Yeah, it was beautiful. I think that was one of my highlights, actually, of the Israel trip when we were there, mm-hmm. because it felt like, okay, this, this has got to be the place, A. Mm-hmm. And B, it was just one of those ones where it's always been kind of hard for me to visualize this Gethsemane scene, because you know mm-hmm. I don't spend much time in olive groves or gardens or anything mm-hmm. of that. So kind of just to to be in the midst of that was wild, and I thought that was a. Be- they have a beautiful church there with like some of the most beautiful stained glass I've ever seen. So mm-hmm. hey, give that a Google people. Yeah, it, re- it really is. I'd,
0: I'd agree. That was one of my very favorite spots. Like on the whole, I would say going up to Galilee because they have thankfully left it very untouched. Yeah. It feels very natural. There's not a lot of development going Pernum,
1: on. You can walk where Jesus walked. Totally, totally. You're cool. on
0: the shores. That's that's really cool. You're looking at the ruins and you know Peter's mother-in-law's house, likely. You know, you're seeing the synagogues, the the ancient ruins is really cool, um, but in Gethsemane they've kept it to where it's just an olive grove. There isn't that a private the place there? Yeah, it's privately owned, which is and wild. Yeah, so we, but but they have done a good job of maintaining it. You go in there and it's an olive grove, and so I'd say it's one of the places where I felt the most spiritually impacted. Um, where it's like Jesus wept in this place. Jesus wrestled with his fate here. It's one of those, you know, Gethsemane is one of the stories where you see Jesus like his humanity on display in full force. And you see the gravity of your salvation as it weighed on him.
1: And it was like palpable when you're there almost. Mm-hmm. Like that was one Agreed. of the places where I felt like, you know, when you're at the Temple Mount, everything's kind of so different. You didn't feel, but in Gethsemane, like we were there like in the morning. So it's mm-hmm. not even like, you know, at night, I'm sure this would be even, you know, a, a bigger feeling just because you feel that. But like people were weeping. You just felt like mm-hmm. you felt like you were in the store and you kind of it kind of got you emotionally closer to kind of walking through yeah. this with him. Yeah. Which was a wild guys, I wasn't ready for that. Yeah, you know, when you get on the bus in Israel, was are like, OK, <laughs> you know, I barely slept on my hotel bed last night where we've been trucking around from place to place. You get it and then you just end up at this beautiful olive grove with so mm-hmm. much history. And then you just think. Oh, wow. Yeah. Kind of stepping into the story was a wild feeling. Mm -hmm. And it's a little more quiet,
0: like you're talking about, than everything else. And it just lets you sit and ponder the love of your Savior and what he does in this place, um, which is pretty wild. And one of the other things that's interesting about when you get to Gethsemane, you realize, like, this is not far removed from the Temple Mount. You're you're literally looking. You're at the bottom of a hill and right up top— the hill that's you know right in front of you is the place where the soldiers would be coming to arrest Jesus with torches and everything else. He would have been able to see them coming. Yeah. He doesn't run. I mean, it's like it's not far—two hundred yards, three hundred that yards. That's the first maybe. time somebody you know,
1: explained that to me. I never understood that because you yeah. think like it's you know they've, they've been sneaking around. They're trying mm-hmm. to do all this in stealth, and then you probably have this processional of uh, way too many soldiers mm-hmm. coming to get yeah. a preacher man. <laughs> yeah, I mean he he would have seen them coming out
0: of the walls. <sighs> Of Jerusalem, it's 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 interesting. It's I'm glad to have that visual in my head, having been there, because it he doesn't run and he could have. So, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, "Sit here while I pray." And so again, here in the moment of crisis, he doesn't try to you know, all right, be strong, be strong. He needs time with his father. Uh, he knows that that time is short that he is about to lose access to the Father when he is drenched in our sin. And so he says, sit here, i got to go spend time with my Father. And he took with him Peter and James and John. Again, that's his inner circle. Those three are always with him in these kind of critical moments. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. We can't imagine what it's like to be a perfectly righteous Jesus who is innocent of all things, who has never known broken communion with the Father, to know that he is about to be drenched in sin and shame, and he's about to suffer wrath, and he's about to be entirely alienated um, from the Father.
1: And this moment is just like anything, like the foreboding moment before the moment happens Mm -hmm. in all of our lives, you know, like almost the fear of coming into what you're, you know, something that you know is about to take place, mm-hmm. and you can just imagine, yeah, what distress and a troubled soul would feel like in that mm-hmm. moment. Maybe not to that degree, but we've all felt it to one degree or another, so if you multiply that by mm-hmm. an infinite number, yeah, you're like, oh man, this is like... And like human Jesus, mm-hmm. which is the wild part. I think this is where humanity almost shines clearest for me. Like, he's praying, he's in distress, and this is where he seeks solace in a sense.
0: Mm-hmm. And And we can't we can relate to him on a finite level, but we've never had a relationship that's as wonderful and as pure and as life-giving. Yeah. He doesn't have sin that is blocking out the love of God or corrupting it in his senses. Like, he understands the goodness of God. He is receiving the love of the Father. He, he is experiencing it in a way that we don't in our fallen natures, and yeah. he's about to have to set that aside. So he, he's got that, but beyond that... He knows the infinite supply of it all. He's, it's, it's an infinite thing that's about to be severed. It's an eternal thing. He's never in all of eternity had a moment where the love of the Father and the doting of the Father is not upon him. And he is about to sever that in some sense to where he feels forsaken in the moment. Yeah. And he presses on. Why? Because he loves Sam. And he loves Will, and he loves the person listening to this. There's, I mean, that is, that's the reason he wasn't, he had everything. He had all the riches and wealth and honor and glory in heaven. He had the Father and the praise of the angels, and he had dominion and everything else. The only thing that he gains by coming down into this world is us.
1: Yeah, the mission of Jesus, you know, we've been talking about, it, what, this is week 14, so this is week six of that portion of the sermon series. And it's all—it's not been hypothetical, but it's always been forward-looking. Like, hey, the mission of Jesus is dying a cross, we get that end. But this is like the first moment when really, like, I, I feel it, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, like, the emotional response is more just like, okay, no, this has started. Like, mm-hmm. this is real. This is not just, you know, Jesus talking and prophesying and saying these things are going to happen. He's not just giving the disciples a heads up. He's like... No, it started. Mm-hmm. Like time has begun.
0: Yeah. No, the the passion doesn't start at the trial. It doesn't start and you know the on the Golgotha. The passion is starting here. Yeah. You know he is is sensing this. His blood is going, as we see in Luke's gospel, his blood is going to start being shed in Gethsemane. Um, and it's not even by human hands. But he said to his disciples, "My soul is very sorrowful, even to death." remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And that's amazing. I mean, that's the heart of obedience. And you see Jesus living it out here perfectly. Um, and there's so much and just these few sentences for like, for example, when he says, if it's possible, like yeah. he's saying, take this cup, which all throughout the Old Testament, repeated through the prophets, the Psalms, every time that we hear the cup of God, it's referring to his wrath. You know, that that there's a cup that's filled with the fury of God for all of the evil in the world, and the nations and the wicked are going to have to drink it. And now Jesus, who's the only person in all of history who has never sinned, who's loved God perfectly, who's loved his neighbor perfectly, now all of a sudden he's saying, I'm holding this cup. Yeah. So everything in the Old Testament that's been warning humanity's going to have to drink this cup of wrath, Jesus is now saying, no, 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 that cup is in my hand. And if it's possible, God, please take it away. And the fact that God doesn't take it away has a theological meaning to it, right? It is impossible, is the statement here. It's impossible for you to be saved. It is impossible for the cup of God's wrath to not fall on you unless Jesus drank it all for you. Yeah. So there's no other way. He Either he drinks it huh. on the cross or it is left for you to drink, yeah. right? And so you have Jesus pleading, if there's another way, please, God, make it be so. But the answer is, there is no other way.
1: And I think it's a cool model prayer in a sense. You see Jesus in distress. And I think my prayers can either become just half of this sentence. Mm -hmm. No, it can (laughs) become like, take (laughs) it away. and, And like almost in a selfish way, like, hey, take this away because, you know, whatever it is, whatever justification I give it in that moment. Or in distressing things. I just kind of write it off thinking, no, God, there's no way you can do this. So you pray that, you know, not that it's trite. I think some people when they pray this really do believe it, but I think a lot of people don't as well. Like, you mm-hmm. know, when you tag to that, because we don't trust God to change impossible situations. So you're like, it's kind of like a caveat, like, hey, God, I really want you to, to heal somebody of cancer. Hey, God, this is going, this is going on. But, you know, I'm afraid that if you don't do it to justify that you're not going to do it. Hey, whatever your will, though, mm-hmm. like I kind of, which is true. There's a heart to that. But also this is like, it's like both of them running full steam. Mm-hmm. Like it's like a hundred percent like, Hey God really take this away, but also a hundred percent. Like I, I trust you in this. Even if it, it's not just like a, an excuse to mm-hmm. get out of it. If it, if God just doesn't work and you know, mm-hmm. so I think that's fascinating because I fall on either side of that seesaw most times in prayer. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible picture of how wonderful and faithful the Lord
0: is even in suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's times where Satan, his chief accusation, always, from the garden to the wilderness temptations, whenever you find Satan, he's, he comes and he says, if God really loves you, that's that's, where, that's always the first, if, if you really are the son of God, you know, then God should make things easy for you. Yeah. Then God should take away this suffering. Then God should answer your desires. And that's always the way that Satan presents, you know, temptation. If God loves you, you shouldn't have to suffer. And here you have Jesus who's saying, in a in a very real sense, I'm undergoing intense sorrow, even to the point of death. I am at what feels like a breaking point for my very life. And I I want you to move, God. I I don't know, I don't know how this is gonna go, but like I trust you with it. And I trust that you're good and you can bring good out of it. And I know lots of people, you know, having gone through, you know, recently with my mom passing away and some of the stuff that she faced and my dad faced, and now that Mark is facing. um, When you not only, because it's one thing to say, you know, this is what you should do. You should be like Jesus, and you should say, you know, not my will, yours be done. And that's that's easy to say, but what's even more meaningful. Than, than giving somebody a moral imperative and say you should do this is to look at God who is in the same boat and Jesus who who can relate to you. You know, when you're in those moments and you're thinking, Man, I don't I don't know how I'm gonna get through this. This is really hard. Like I'm I'm like at the breaking point. I don't know how much more I can endure. This is really, really hard. You hear the voice of your Savior, God Almighty, the one who's sovereign over all things, saying This is unbelievably hard. And yet, you know, I want you to take it away, but I love them so much that if this is the only way that I can purchase them from death and suffering is to walk through this path that you've put before me, then I will do it to honor your will and to glorify you and to purchase them, and I'm going to trust that you've got something in this that makes the suffering meaningful and you can't ever say to god you don't know what it's like yeah jesus modeled something far through far more suffering than we'll ever face and it's a comfort to know that that's the kind of god that we have you know when you're lonely we talked about this last episode you know you see all these people peeling away from jesus and yet he says you're all going to leave me and yet i'm still coming for you i'm still going to meet you in galilee wow Well, he's forsaken so that we never will be. He will always pursue us, you know? He suffers so that in the end there's meaning to the suffering, and glory will override and triumph over suffering, always, because of what he does here. And that's our hope. Suffering will never have the last word over a Christian, ever. So it goes on in verse 37, it says, And he came and found them sleeping. (laughs) So you got to, and I mean, I don't mean to laugh because this is really terrible. I mean, I guess I do. But. They could have narcolepsy. Like, no, that's we, real. You're, two people who are hosting this have been diagnosed with narcolepsy.
1: Yeah, you're lucky that neither of us has just fallen asleep during this podcast.
0: <laughs> you never know. We could have edited yeah. it out, you know.
1: Will, stop snoring. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but I, I, I've never met anyone else with narcolepsy, and here we are. Here we are. <laughs> so here you have Jesus, who has just been pleading with the Lord like, man, I'm. You know, everyone's is going to be, betray me. I feel the cup coming from you. He's going into his greatest moment of crisis, and he goes back and he finds his closest friends, and they can't even stay awake with him when he's in his greatest hour of need. So that, that pain of loneliness is heightened here. And he says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I love that's a, a very compassionate thing that Jesus says there. He's like, I know where your heart is, yeah, but you've been through it, and you can imagine if you if you'd have been with Jesus as he's laying into the temple priest and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians all week, and you're constantly living like this is this is really really stressful. Like they're worn out as Jesus would have been. Um, their spirit was willing, but their flesh was weak. And he went away again, and he prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. It's like, oh, man, we, we didn't mean to fall asleep. We just couldn't help it. Yeah, we've been there. <laughs> and he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man betrayed into the hand of sinners. And you can just imagine he's looking... At this parade of soldiers and guards coming out of the temple walls, through the walls, down into the valley, coming up the other side into the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows they're coming and he does not run away.
1: Yeah, and even, even the phrase, you know, 42 says, rise, let us be going. In my mind, it's like, rise, let us get out of here. <laughs> yeah. No, but he's walking towards it. Like yeah. he's walking into, mm-hmm. you know, the eventual kiss of his betrayer, which yeah. is wild to think about. You know, one of the other Gospels,
0: and I don't know which one it was, says that it was their routine at this time to go to Gethsemane to pray. And so when Judas leaves, because Judas has already left at this point, he's gone, he's told the religious leaders, you know, I'm going to take you where I know he's going to be. And when the one I kiss is the one, it's dark, and some of the soldiers probably don't know Jesus for sure who he is. Um, But you have, Jesus says, like, I'm going to the place that I always go.
1: Won't take long to find Yeah,
0: him. it's not like he sees Judas leave and, oh, Judas is going to betray me, so we got to switch things up tonight. Yeah. <laughs> he goes to where he knows Judas knows where he'll be. He has set his face toward this. He's not running. He's not fleeing. He's not trying to avoid it, even though he doesn't want to go to the cross. He doesn't want the agony of everything he's going to face. He goes to the same spot. He waits. When he sees them coming, he goes toward them, not away. It's all of that.
1: And it's interesting that he has a method and a routine for his prayer. You know, mm-hmm. as a son of God, you think, you know, this is like, we're not early in the evening, right? Like this. Oh, it's a, late. This is late. So, like this, if this is, late. is if he's like a, you know, late night prayer. You know, it'd be easy just to be, you know, where he's at and like, okay, hey, it's time yeah. to pray before bed. But no, he's like, hey, this is where I go to meet God. Like, this is a place for me that's special. And I'm going to keep going there. And in my distress, I'm not going to change that routine. I'm actually mm-hmm. going to go deeper into mm-hmm. it, which I think is a fascinating thing. Like Jesus falling back on, you know, kind of his, what he's created, the routine he's created in his own heart to meet with God, even mm-hmm. in his distress. So in great distress, he's not going against it. He's, he's running into his routine mm-hmm. to where he is constantly met with God over and over and over again. So even in, in a place that like, you know, where suffering will come, It's it's thinking, okay, hey what's my routine and, and my discipline and my prayer life mm-hmm. and my scripture reading before you know it feels like the wheels yeah. fall off my life yeah that's like, the
0: most important thing for him
1: yeah cuz like and that's what's important for us and it feels like you know all of us when we're on top of the mountain it seems like you know it's easy to be like okay i don't need this time i'm good mm-hmm. like my routine like i'm going to go to god when i'm in distress but like we, we fall back on our method and our routine so you know even building that up at mm-hmm. this stage in my life you know not waiting for suffering but knowing that hey something's going to happen it's not mm-hmm. it's not if it's when and, and where is my walk with jesus and relationship going to be can i just fall onto the natural thing that i've created with him the habit of it all and it seems like jesus did exactly that so how much more do i need that habit of finding my place with with god to talk to him when distress hits
0: that's really good. And there's also something to it where like the sovereignty of God is writing the story so that we pick up really important comparisons as well. So why does Jesus go to a garden where he's going to be betrayed? You know, this is going to be the second time that God is betrayed in a garden, Boom. right? Going all the way back to the beginning when man said, you know what, I don't want you. And Adam and Eve spat in his face and said, I want authority, I want power. And now you have Jesus who's in a garden, who's going to be betrayed again. And by the people that are supposed to be worshiping him. This isn't, you know, Gentile evil people that are coming for him. It's the religious guys. Yeah, these guys it's the should people. have known it the best. Yeah, they know the scriptures. They've been given the covenants. They've, and they're the ones who hate him. They're the ones who are coming for him. And so it's the it's a deep betrayal of God again and where Adam everything everything that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden you know they didn't they didn't have people who hated them in a garden Jesus does yeah you know their their motivation when God said to them hey if you're righteous you will not die but God is coming to Jesus saying hey if you obey me you're going to die you're going to suffer if you obey. Adam and Eve, the the motive was the other way, and they couldn't obey. You know, everything in this is going to be turned on its head. You know, God stations... uh, Remember at the first one, and the the fall in the garden, God moves the sinful people out, Hmm. right? But now you have the sinful people who are coming to arrest God. And the first one, you have God who takes a cherubim angel and says, you know, take this flaming sword... And nobody is going to like denigrate the holiness of God by coming into this garden again. And man is forbidden now. Well, you have Peter here in a minute. What does he do? In the other Gospels, we find that Peter pulls out a sword and he's like, <laughs> "Hey, you know, no way!" And he starts slinging a sword and cuts off a dude's ear. And what does Jesus say? No, no sword this time. Hmm. You know, in the first, the fall, you had God who erected the sword who says, "My holiness will not be tampered with by sinful men." And in this one, you have Jesus saying, "Put the sword away. Yeah. I will let sinful men come into this garden. It's time. Take a holy God and put me through absolute hell, wow. because I'm on a mission to rescue them. Yeah, and he's going to overthrow all. We'll find this out next episode. How the all of the the passion is overthrowing the curses of the fall, and it's really really fascinating. But God is up to very poetic things, you know." We read scripture a lot of times, like lawnmower manual, like, okay, what's the story? It's really, but when yeah. you sit and you chew on it, it's like, my goodness, like Jesus is accomplishing things that are really pretty profound and amazing.
1: I think it is cool that I think I learned it this is going back to just Gethsemane just off the bat so I don't know if this fits in right here but doesn't it literally mean like olive press or something like that mm-hmm. like which was fascinating that Jesus Christ ends up in a place that's oppressed and he's literally being pressed with so much distress and suffering that like you said in the other Gospels it's he's not gonna like leak oil he's gonna leak out his very own mm-hmm. blood like that's like a picture of like oh that's the kind of distress he was under. Mm-hmm
0: yeah it, I, when we if you remember when we were over there um it, when we're in the I mean, olive garden there, right? of Gethsemane, the way that they harvest these olives is they wait until the olive has turned from like this greenish color to more of a purpley color. yeah and then they there are people out there with like broomsticks and bats and they just start beating them. the snot out of these trees and all of the really ripe olives that are filled with the oil, fall, where the the ones that are still green don't. And so they come down on a tarp, they gather them up, and then they take them over to a stone, which is still there, if you remember seeing that. They lay it on a stone, and then they roll millstones over the top of these olives, and all of that kind of purplish, clear oil comes out. And they use the oil to light the lampstand in the temple, to heal wounds, for torches, for all of, of these kinds of things. And so, like you said, when Jesus is in this place called Gats, it's an Aramaic word, Gatsimani, and it means oil press, what's happening is he is being crushed under the weight of all the sin of mankind. And what happens to him? And Luke, we're told that he began to sweat like blood. And so, what does that blood accomplish? Well, the blood brings healing and the blood brings the light of the world. I mean, there's so much poetic that God is doing here, and that's, that's a Sam, you know, who knows if that's correct. I don't remember where we learned that from, but, but it fits, you know? Yeah. Another thing, when, when Jesus is talking about the end times, and he says, you know, the, the end of the world is going to be like it was in the days of Noah, and he talks about the judgment of the world will be like the days of Noah again. How did you know that the judgment against Noah was over?
1: Oh, the, the olive branch, right? That's
0: right. He sends out a dove, and the dove brings back an olive branch. Well, here you have the Savior of the world, and what is he surrounded by? Olive branches everywhere.
1: And we still use an olive branch as one mm-hmm. piece, right? Peace, yeah. Stuff. He, all,
0: all cultures through history yeah. seem to love the olive branch. But here you have Jesus, who is the antidote to the judgment of the world, huh. and he is surrounded by the very thing that announced the end of the judgment of the world the first time. You know, which could that am I supposed to see that? <laughs> I don't know, but it works. You I can't know, it's, unsee it now. Yeah, right. I don't know. That's, that's, that's kind of how I am. Um, but I love all this stuff, you know, and I part of me wonders if God the Father is ordaining all these little things as encouragements to Jesus. Like, do you see this? This is the reason why you're doing it. This is the reason why you're doing it. So verse 43, it says, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So these are the religious, these are the temple guards, not the Romans yet. Now the betrayer had given them a sign. I love how all of a sudden Judas has, a, like, not even his name, yeah, the betrayer. Yeah, he was yeah. one of the
1: twelve right before, but I was like, <laughs> he's out.
0: Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. In other Gospels, Jesus will say, you know, you betray the Son of Man with a kiss. You know, do what you're supposed to do quickly. Uh, But So the guards grab Jesus, they seize him, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut his ear off. We know that's Peter from other Gospels. And Jesus will heal that servant, by the way, reattach his ear. Another miracle in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus said to them, have you come out? He's talking to the, the soldiers and the priests, guards. He says, have you come out as against a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. I'm not a fugitive that's running away from you, but you didn't seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled, and he's telling them this is exactly how it was supposed to go down. This is the way that the scriptures said this would go down, and he's throwing a little bit of a, a piece of judgment on them. Like, if you're one of these guards, you're like, wait a minute. Okay, <laughs> yeah. He's right. He's right. All of his disciples, apostles, left him and fled. And then we're given this weird little thing that's, (laughs) that's only in Mark in verse 51, and it says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So it's like you were saying... This is the first recorded streaker there in history. <laughs> but it's like, all right, why is he just wearing a linen cloth about his body? Like, what's going on and why here? Why is he following him? So so they say that this is actually Mark, that Mark yeah. is writing himself into the story, and that comes from church tradition. But I guess because he's young, you know, because he's he's going to be a rather young man at this point, that he would not be in fear of his life. You know, if you were old enough to have a rabbi, if you were part of the sect, you know, they, he, they feared for their lives. They all run away. But a little kid or a woman has less to fear. And so women do follow Jesus into the crucifixion. John, who's the only one who will be at the crucifixion, they believe was there because he was so young as huh. one of the disciples that it was less threatening for him to be there. And so when it says young man, that's really important here. He didn't fear that he would be charged with anything. So he's running, and eventually, you know, they grab his cloak and he runs away naked. Um, and there's the other church traditions that say that the, the house where Jesus stayed, um, when they had the Last Supper, that there's tradition that says that that was Mark's that parents' house. Um, and Mark is going to be super close to Peter. You've heard it said before, probably that the gospel of mark is really written from peter's perspective that mark is essentially the scribe for peter's version of events and so the gospel of mark is essentially peter's gospel and so mark some way or another had a close in with the apostles and those are the prevailing theories
1: it's like a cameo who's that uh is it Stanley, the Marvel director, yeah, who's yeah, yeah. always in
0: all those? Like he yeah. just popped in, yeah, Fine. just showed up, yeah. Just but, like, but plays another character, so yeah. Mark doesn't say, "And I was there and ran away naked." but yeah, here's just... a, a young boy. But why this details in there? You know, I've sat and I have thought, you know, is this like the Joseph story where Joseph runs away, leaving his cloak behind? I have no idea what this, why this is important. Uh, but Mark finds it important, um, interesting. So now Jesus is going before the council, the council is the Sanhedrin, and to understand kind of what this is, in Jerusalem and in Israel, you had a number of different governing authorities. You had ultimately Rome governed, right? You had Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, who was in charge of all of it, but the Roman Senate had appointed, years and years earlier, had appointed Herod to be king over the region, and so Herod kind of controlled the region, but under the authority of Rome. And But the Jews did not like Herod because he was from the line of the Edomites, partly Esau, and so they didn't see him as a real Jew. He was part Gentile, so they considered him a dog. They weren't happy to be under his authority or his children's authority, and so they had a body of elders that was called the Sanhedrin, and it's like 70 guys that make up and they they control kind of the religious leadership of Israel. They're the governing body because Rome really didn't care what you did in territories they controlled, so long as you paid taxes and you didn't cause trouble. You could do whatever yeah, you wanted to in your own territory, it. unless you were like you know denigrating the emperor or something. But the Sanhedrin has the authority, and it was said that they had authority pretty much to do whatever they wanted except certain things like they couldn't put someone to death by crucifixion. That was a Roman method of, okay. of execution. Um, so the soldiers, the temple guard, they lead Jesus to the high priest. And now all of it, already out of the gates, as we're going to see, they're violating tons of their own laws. This is a kangaroo trial. They're desperate to get it done before the people wake up. Um, And so they do all sorts of corner-cutting and evil things to get Jesus executed here. So they lead Jesus to the high priest, and we know from putting all the Gospels together, the first high priest that he goes to is a guy named Annas. And Annas was a high priest probably in Jesus' childhood, but he was so disliked by people in authority that he had to step down. But everybody still saw him as the high priest, but it was political reasons why he had to step down as the official high priest, and he gave his title to, I think, his son-in-law, whose name is Caiaphas. You may, may have heard that name before. But both of them essentially are high priests in the eyes of the people. Okay. And so Jesus goes to Annas, then Annas is going to call in Caiaphas, and eventually, throughout the night, you got to imagine it's like 2 a.m., and they're sending word to all of the people on the Sanhedrin saying, put your clothes on, come down, yeah, we, we got do him." We got him. Hurry up. And so all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting there with the guards and warming himself in the fire. So it's cold. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They were bringing in and like paying people to come in and offer false testimony But they couldn't get any... In in Jewish law, you have to have the testimony of two people that are in agreement in order to establish a charge. But everybody's all over the map. None of this is credible. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, "Uh, we heard him say, I'll destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another, which he did say, but he was talking about his body in the resurrection. Um, but their testimony didn't agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, so person after person after person after person after person's coming forward saying, you know, he encouraged us to rebel against Rome. He encouraged us not to pay taxes. He said he was going to destroy the temple. He did all these, you know, da-da-da. Well, finally, the high priest is tired of this. And he stands up in frustration in the middle of everything and says, Have you no answer to make? Yelling at Jesus. What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the reason for that, he doesn't see them as a real court in the eyes of God, right? He doesn't recognize their authority. So he remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him again, Are you Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And in the other Gospels, the, the high priest is yelling, I adjure you by the living God. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus answers. So why does he answer that question? Because the high priest says, I adjure you in the name of the living God. So now Jesus is seeing, I'm testifying before God, not this kangaroo court, and he actually answers now. He says, I am, which those words are powerful. Yeah. That's the name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am, and you will see the Son of Man. Now he's going to the prophets. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Not only am I the Messiah, but I am the one who is going to come back to establish justice, to bring the vengeance of God. I am going to bring the eternal kingdom. And when the high priest heard this he tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him. Like, that's so demeaning.
1: Yeah.
0: I'd rather take a punch than a spit in the face. I don't know about that. No, oh, I'm definitely taking, definitely, definitely taking <laughs> the punch. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face to stri- and to strike him, saying to him, Oh, prophesy! Who hit you? And the guards received him with blows. And so here you have, you have this absolute kangaroo court that the the most ironic thing is these are, this is the Sanhedrin. These are the people that are supposed to know the law. They're supposed to worship God. They're supposed to lead the nation in godliness. And they're looking at God in the face accusing God of blasphemy. Wow. They're Beating God in the face and spitting on God. Which Jesus would say, this is this is what you've always done to yeah. me. You may not have done it physically, but my people have always turned on me and always spat in my face. You've always wanted power above relationship.
1: Yeah, I think of this, I think I'm reading this anew for the first time in a moment. Uh, but I was planned the physical stuff on Rome. You know, you thought like, no, Rome. Those are the bad guys. Those are the torturers. Those are the guys who, you know, they they do this to people. Mm-hmm. But now it's like, no, like you said, like no, these are these are the guys who are on the pedestal, just like mm-hmm. the guys who should know, the guys who should see. And now it's just, I mean, they're just so blinded by all of this that they would spit, and temple guards would hit and mm-hmm. attack and come to blows with Jesus. This, mm-hmm.
0: you know. and and what you you get jumping into the mind of these. The Sanhedrin. The reason why they chose this particular time to go arrest him and to put him into a trial, the best way I know how to explain it is that when you had the Passover, everybody was at home. This is when you pull in all your relatives. This is when the family's together. Uh, nobody's out. It's think of think of like Christmas night. Yeah. Like the stores are closed. It's uh, it's Passover. There's, There's no merchants out on the street. There's nowhere to go. Everybody's in their homes. Everything is quiet. Nobody's looking to organize a mob or a protest or a riot. Nobody knows what's happening to Jesus. So they arrest him. They bring him to the high priest's house. They go collect up all the members of the Sanhedrin and the priests and scribes, and they bring together a very, very—and everybody who hates him— and they bring together this mob of people in secret, right? and nobody's out in the streets. So this is all done in secret. And if you if you study the scriptures, there's so many violations of what they were supposed to do in normal jurisprudence. And I'm going to I'm going to make the mistake of reading a list of the ones I came up with. 12 of them. So brace yourselves. These are mm-hmm. all the things that the people who are so legalistic, remember, these are the people who are constantly getting on Jesus for not washing hands and you know, doing healing on the Sabbath. They're so legalistic. And yet when it comes to put, putting Jesus to death, these, these are all the things they short-circuit. It was illegal for the chief priest to bribe an accomplice in order to secure an arrest, but that's what they did. They paid Judas 30 pieces of silver to get an arrest. That was illegal. It was illegal for the Sanhedrin to convene after nightfall and before the morning sacrifice. But they've done that. They are arresting him after nightfall and trying him the same night. It was illegal for the Sanhedrin to originate the charges against the accused. So no one else is bringing charges against Jesus. They're originating it, and as they're, you know, they're bringing in witnesses, they're the ones trying to drum up charges. Jewish law required that no judgments be issued on the eve of a Sabbath or any festival. Well, here we are, right? The they're ignoring that one because it's convenient for them. The Sanhedrin couldn't issue a death sentence on the same day as a guilty verdict. As we'll see, they happily do that. It was illegal to convict a man on the basis of his own comments. So if I came to you and said something during a trial and it was incriminating, you you had to verify it by somebody outside of myself. Yeah, they violate that one because Jesus is the one who says, "I am," and you will see me returning on the clouds of glory. Right. Well, those, those are his comments. It's illegal for a man to be convicted without matching testimony from two witnesses. They ignore that. It's illegal to convict a man without first conducting a recorded and balloted vote of the elders of the Sanhedrin. They ignore that. It was illegal for the Sanhedrin to issue a guilty verdict outside of the temple complex. They're doing that. They're at the high priest's house. It was illegal for enemies or adversaries of an accused person to sit in judgment of them. Well, these are his main enemies. They've hated him from the get-go. It's illegal for the high priest to interrogate a criminal suspect in private. They did that. Judges of criminal proceedings were required to conduct a thorough investigation. They don't do that. No, they They don't even attempt to do that. And so it shows you the desperation of all these religious legalists who are more than happy to throw the law out the window when it comes to squelching and silencing Jesus.
1: Yeah, it's not a short list. I mean, that's pretty good. Oh, yeah. I mean, that would be thrown out on one of those in a modern yep. day court. You know, you see people you know, just for messing up some stuff. Mm-hmm. Trial. Oh, the, redo it.
0: Yeah, this would have been a mistrial in a, in a heartbeat if this was in an appeals court in modern day. Like so many miscarriages of justice. And they just ignore them. I, I can't think of anything they did right. Honestly, (laughs) yeah, there's and this like everything they did was wrong, everything was totally manufactured to get a guilty verdict of an innocent man, even to the point where later, when they take him before Pilate, who actually is like, Wait, 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 let me hear this. I find three times, I find no fault in this man, I find no fault in this man. Three times he says it, um, but they're just desperate to kill him. All right, and so the last section and Mark chapter 14 is when Peter denies Jesus. Um, So as Jesus is dealing with this torment, and he's being beaten and blindfolded and spat upon, um, everybody else has run away, and Peter has a crisis of conscience, mm-hmm. and he wants to sneak back. He's got to know what's happening to my friend. What's ha- and Peter loves him. Yeah. And you'll remember when, it's an interesting thing to consider this, but when when Jesus says, everyone's going to fall away, Peter says, even if I have to die, die with you, I'll never leave you. And he meant it. Peter's not a coward. You remember when they come to arrest him in the garden? It's Peter who takes out the sword and says, all right, it's on, let's do this, right? He's not like, oh my gosh, I gotta <laughs> run. Like, But in his mind, what is he thinking? He's thinking, I'm gonna fight for him.
1: Yeah, I'm going down here in blaze yeah, of glory.
0: That's totally it. I'm, I'm happy to die. Hey, let me pull out my sword, let's go to battle. Hey, if I'm on the losing side, whatever. But I'm happy to fight and die for you. But Jesus says, put your sword away. And what? Peter's happy to fight and die for Jesus. But what he can't wrap his mind around is, you want me to lay down my life? Yeah, I don't know that I can do that. And that is where Peter's struggling. Like, I want to fight for you, but you don't want me to, and I don't know what to do, (laughs) but I'm sure not going to go in there and just let them capture me and torture me and everything else. I'm not there, (laughs) but I feel for Peter in this. This is one of the most haunting moments in the Gospels for me.
1: And this is one of the the beautiful parts of Scripture, that you have this, if we look back, we think, okay, Mark is writing this from Peter's perspective. You know, this isn't going to show Peter in a good light. Yeah. Peter doesn't, like, kind of tone it down. This is like Peter at his worst mm-hmm. saying, okay, hey, Mark, this is this is how it went down, the yeah. worst moment of my life. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's one of the things I love about our faith. Um, you, you look at other religious writings, um You'll never have the heroes, the people that are lifted up to be kind of the examples. You never see them shown in a negative light. Like Muhammad is just amazing, right? He's he's amazing. He's God's prophet all throughout the Quran. Or if you go to, to ancient mythologies, their heroes might have slight flaws, but they're always like super brave and virtuous and noble or whatever— the Scriptures are presenting the people of God just one after the next with these fatal flaws. They question God. In the Psalms, David is crying out to God, How long? Where are you? You know, Job having it out with God. Paul having it out with God like there's a real sense. Of, and, and you see the failures of Paul. You see the ugly side of Paul. You certainly see a lot of the ugly side of Peter again and again and his his brashness. And I can relate to these guys. Yeah, And it's, it's like I've told probably way too many times. Yeah. Jesus is the only hero of scripture. Yeah. He's the hero. Everything else in scripture is pointing you to recognize your need of him. Mm. You know, the greatest heroes fall. David falls, Adam falls, Solomon falls, Joshua falls, Moses falls. Like all of that is making you hunger for a hero, a savior that does not fall. And Peter's another example of this, where you see a guy who loved Jesus with everything he had. Like, he he was all in. He was, you know, brash about it. Like, this is my life. And here in this moment, stumbles. and says, "As Peter, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself—remember, he's at the fire— she looked at him and said, Hey, you— you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And so he's got this denial. It says, the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, hey, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly, you're one of them, for you're a Galilean, like they could hear his accent, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Hmm. Can you relate to this guy?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Not probably to that extreme. You know, this is An extreme version of it Mm -hmm. all. But even you think in this moment, like it's a servant girl of all people. Mm -hmm. It's like the chief priest is out there calling him out. Yeah. It's like this. I never even thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like this girl who should have no standing. I mean, she's a servant. She's she's a woman. She's described as a girl, so she could be young. Yeah, she is. And even even Peter's like afraid to even tell this servant girl. Like he's afraid to come clean about it to her. Just in this group in the courtyard, who you know, just people in a courtyard. Yet he's so diminished by all this, and so afraid, and so just wherever he's at, he's like, no, definitely not.
0: Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. So he, and he's going to deny Jesus these three times, and in Luke's gospel, Mm. I, I love the line that Luke adds in there. It says that when the rooster crowed after that third denial, that immediately, like when Peter knew, he was like, Oh, yeah, I remember now that prophecy just floods into his mind. And when he looks up, Jesus is staring at him, yeah. like looking at the him, and the two make eye contact. And then it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. And I got to imagine that is just a, a crushing moment in the life of Peter where you love somebody so much but you just don't have it in you to be faithful in that moment. Yeah. And I mean when he caught eyes with Jesus, you know, his face would have been bruised up and bloodied and mm. spat upon and he's, you know, already being mocked by the chief priest. Um and you know that he's facing it, but you also know there's there's nothing I can do. And, you know, if I if I come just to be with you and to die with you. It doesn't accomplish anything is what's going through Peter's mind. And, you know, I remember watching Chronicles of Narnia a long time ago, 15 years ago with Laura. And at the end of it, I was, it's its like annoying to me because when I watch the, the end scene of the Chronicles of Narnia where there's this great battle and you get to charge the front line and it's like you're having it out with evil and it's once and for all time and this is it. You just get to do that and it's over. I I feel like I can ramp up for that. Like yeah. I'm ready. Like let's do it. I'll fight. Even you know I might not get the best licks in, but like let me let me do this. Like I'm I'm in. I yeah. want to I want to see that battle. But the reality of the Christian life is it's this prolonged, decades long, dying to yourself and your pride and the mundane. In the everyday conversations, in the way that you treat your wife and your friends and your kids and your employees and your coworkers, it's it's this kind of like slow mortification of dying to self constantly, yeah. and it's way easier to pull out your sword and go after Malchus. <laughs> you know, yeah. it is really hard when Jesus says, "You know what? You have to lay yourself down." Even when you can't see how this works to your benefit. That's really hard. And man, I can I can relate to Peter here.
1: Yeah, it's the little things. It's the conversations, it's our egos and our reputations. And if we say this in front of this group of people, what are they gonna think? And just Mm -hmm. the opinions of others like just drives our lifestyle so easily and so much. And like I mean, you see it with Peter. This little servant girl just defined him in a moment. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: You know, we've talked about this before, but in John's gospel, Mark doesn't give us the restoration of Peter. Yeah. But John's gospel does, to where, you know, when Jesus does follow them up to Galilee and Peter's out fishing in a boat and at the, you know, they see Jesus on the shoreline and he yells, they don't know it's Jesus, but he yells out to them, Hey, have you caught any fish? And they say, Now we've been out here all night, we haven't caught a thing, which is exactly how they were called into ministry, how Peter and his brother Andrew were called into ministry. And he says, throw your net on the other side of the boat, and they do so, and they catch a huge load of fish, which is exactly how they were called in. And when Peter recognizes, somebody, I think it's John, says to Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter's like, it all comes flooding back. Mm -hmm. You know, like, he's doing it again. And I love that Peter... (laughs) rips off his fishing clothes, dives into the water, and swims to Jesus in that moment. Hmm. And that just tells me so much about the heart of the Savior, that even after this, you know, and Jesus had given him permission to fail. You know, you will all fall away. Yeah, You're going to. You're going to fail, and yet I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. And so in this moment Peter is just the weight of that failure, the weight of the betrayal, all the ways that he didn't measure up and didn't love Jesus as he deserved. You see the love of Jesus and the way that Peter understood him because he doesn't hide in the boat. He yeah. leaps into the water and wants to get to him as fast as he possibly can. And that says a lot about our savior. Yeah. You're going to fail. You're going to you're going to deny him. You're going to mess up. You're going to have these impulses where at the end of it, you just want to go out and weep bitterly like Peter did because you failed him. And yet, one of the things that I love about this is is knowing the ending. You will fall away, and yet Jesus will always keep pursuing you.
1: Yeah, something must have switched in Peter's mind even over those couple days, because you can imagine the. It seems like the shame and guilt hit him. Obviously, he wept bitterly, mm-hmm. but it seemed like he must have remembered something about Jesus. Like, you know, obviously this is speculation, but like you said, when he sees Jesus again, he's not afraid necessarily to run mm-hmm. towards Jesus. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, you would imagine, like in our lives, it seems like shame and guilt will build until we insert something about Jesus into it until we hold on to a promise, until we remember who Jesus is. And it seems like Peter had to have done that in his life. Mm -hmm. Because I would think, man, those three days, I'm weeping bitterly after denying Jesus, and I know Jesus goes to the cross, and now he's buried in the grave. That would just multiply my shame and guilt. Like, hey, this was my last action Mm -hmm. towards the man I loved. Mm -hmm. And so you would think, but he must have stopped himself because he had just the joy of seeing Jesus again (laughs) or a man that he doesn't know at that stage. It's like... Oh, man, that's there, there's a process that we all have to learn how to remember Jesus in our shame and our guilt mm-hmm. because it is a monster that can just eat us alive and keep building and become three-headed unless you know, we interject Jesus and the gospel into our own lives and we preach it to ourselves mm-hmm. until really we believe it. Yeah, there's, a, there's a, a line, and I think it's Paul.
0: Mark would know, <laughs> but it's, it's where he says uh, there is a repentance, a godly sorrow, that leads to repentance in life, and there's an ungodly sorrow that leads to death. And I've always seen the, the godly sorrow that leads to life and repentance. Um, I see that as Peter. Yeah. You know, it's it's a that in Romans where it says it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Well, when you see someone being kind to you and merciful and sweet and tender, when you totally don't deserve it, it makes you all the more eager to just grab hold of them and repent. You know, you trust, you trust their heart with your repentance. You yeah. know that they're not going to spurn you or shame you. And Peter absolutely knew that about Jesus. And so he puts himself at Jesus's mercy happily, and it frees him from the, mm. the shame and the guilt and the tears, right? And on the other side of that, you have ungodly sorrow that leads to death, and we're going to see that the object lesson there is Judas, Judas. you know who who though he has denied Jesus in a, a more egregious way than Peter but still both of them denied Jesus Judas says there is no hope i'm not even going to seek mercy i don't i don't want to see jesus again i'm terrified of him because of my my shame and my guilt and so he goes out and he will commit suicide And so in our hearts, you know, it's like we need to check ourselves because we're all going to (laughs) fail. We're all going to fall short. We're all going to disappoint, you know, from what God asks of us. But when you mess up, do you have the heart that says, oh my gosh, I messed up. I need to race to Jesus. Yeah. Or do you have the heart that says, oh my gosh, I messed up. I need to hide from Jesus. Yeah. Because what Jesus wants from you, that's why he came. I mean, that's why he died. That's why he goes to the cross is so that shame, guilt can never separate you from the love of God that's found in him. Run to him. Give him your shame. Give him your guilt. Lay down your sins. Confess it and know that he has gone to a cross to give you freedom from all of it Hmm. and life. That's godly sorrow. Moping around and saying I'm no good, God can't love someone as bad as me. That's not godly sorrow. That's prideful, pathetic, ungodly sorrow that leads to destruction. Let go of it. Grab hold of Him. That's why He came. He loves you and wants to free you from it.
1: Yeah, I think that was the first time I came to faith was understanding that difference. When you know, because growing up in a Christian background and kind of being the uh, people pleaser that I am, you know, a lot of that was, hey, I'm good just so I don't disappoint people. Mm -hmm. And my morality looked like I really knew Jesus, uh, but I was on a spiritual retreat in the seventh grade. um, And the song that really broke me was the band was singing this old Joy Williams song. I sometimes listen to it because it's a banger. Um, (laughs) But it's called Hide. And and the chorus is like, you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to face this on your own, right? And that was the first time I was like, oh, Mm mm-hmm. Right, I don't have to hide that portion of me from Jesus, that he loves me for me. He loves me for all of me in this sense that I don't have to pick myself up. And even Peter in this scenario, like Jesus told him it's going to happen. Jesus saw it happen. Mm-hmm. So what is Peter to do? Just act like it doesn't or just like, <laughs> like like, like, sit in it? Like maybe I can hide this from Jesus. Maybe he won't know mm-hmm. that this actually happened. But no, like, and so we do have an omnipotent God who sees all things, knows all things like our first instinct is to run and hide, but you know Peter's giving us no. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the things that is the most sadly
0: the misunderstood part of of Christianity. Is you'll get a lot of people who say it's just it drives guilt. You know, it, it's impossible to measure up. It's it's there's there's too much. You, who's yeah. that good? You know, it just it takes all the fun and you know <laughs> like that argument that it's a religion about rules and shame and everything else. But I. If you really understand where the scriptures are going with that, it's it's so absolutely the opposite because, you know, the the standards of God, you you won't measure up. So spoiler alert: yes, you you do not measure up. But I've heard Tom say this before in sermons, and I love this: that you don't even measure up to your own standards. Yeah, like if if you took everything that you've ever said about the way people should be and you were judged based on your rules, (laughs) you don't measure up to your rules. You feel you're constantly fighting the feeling that you've disappointed people or that you need to earn their approval or that you're not good enough for them. You're wondering, do these people really love me? Am I alone in this? Like every human being at some point or another is struggling with those things to some degree or another. And the Bible, as opposed to all the other secular self help stuff that says you can be good enough and buck up and you're amazing. And the scriptures come and say, Yeah, I know. I know you're a mess. And I love you beyond measure. Mm. You don't have to hide. You know, all the other things put this like stoicism and everything else. They put this pressure on you that says, All right, I gotta be this. I gotta be this. The world expects this from me, so I gotta be this. And inside every human being is going, But I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not. And scripture says, yeah, I see it. You're not. And guess what? Your future in heaven, your forgiveness, your status, your value has nothing to do with the fact that you don't always measure up. It has to do with the fact that Jesus did. And he loves you so absolutely wildly that even though he knows you're going to betray him, even though he knows that you spit in his face, even though he knows that you're going to fail him in a million different ways, he loves you too much to let go, and he will stand in the garden and say, man, I don't want to drink the cup of God's wrath, which I don't deserve, but rather than you having to get even a drop of it, I will drink it bone dry Hmm. so that my people know that they are always loved and always accepted and always good enough because their life is valued at the price tag of my life. Mm. And they are now children of God because they wear my righteousness. It is freeing, not guilt-inducing and enslaving. I wish that was... And that's something that we're, as Christians, as you know, (laughs) we're constantly having to preach to ourselves. Yeah, I'm constantly looking for my value and the approval of others and everything else. But... We need to seek it out in Christ alone.
1: Yeah, and this frees Peter. You know, we know mm-hmm. the rest of Peter's story. That's you right. Know, this isn't the definable thing it feels like. it When you read it, you're like, Peter, no one's going to forget this portion. <laughs> and we do not forget it, you know, yeah. which is a good thing. You know, it's a reminder. But also, Peter moves on from this. Mm-hmm. Like he does. It doesn't seem like this weighs him down for the rest of his life. You know, it's not sinking him mm-hmm. when he's off being a missionary, when he's creating the church, when he is the rock of the church and giving the keys to the kingdom. It's like, no, Peter's felt grace he received Mm -hmm. it and he lived like a man who was fully forgiven Mm -hmm. for it which is beautiful
0: i love it and when jesus comes back and commissions him to continue on in ministry he doesn't say well i'm not sure i want you on the team anymore like he just he says no i called you i didn't make a mistake you're still my guy bud
1: yeah peter doesn't even fight him on it (laughs) yeah you know if jesus even in that moment you think like when he restores him you'd be like well no no no, 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 no. do you remember what just happened (laughs) like i know you've been dead (laughs) for a couple of days but he's like no like it's good he believes the words of jesus Mm -hmm.
0: which is awesome which means if you feel like you're not good enough you need to believe the words of jesus because he has called you he's called you yeah it's his will it's his wisdom let go of your own all right well i think mark would say uh let's let that have the last word yeah that's a good word and we will let it, we will let something stand on that. I forget what he says. <laughs> yeah. Good grief. We'll fix that, Mark. <laughs> anyway, I hope this has been uh, edible and edible. I hope it edifying. has been edible. <laughs> Good grief. I need more sleep. Don't chew this in your car, folks. Hey, we're recording in the morning. I'm used to doing this in the afternoon. My brain hasn't engaged yet. I I don't want this to be edible. I want it to be <laughs> edifying. <laughs> anyway, I hope you've enjoyed your time. Uh, thank you so much for enjoying uh, joining us. Like and subscribe our podcast on Google, all the Stuff. platforms, Apple, everywhere, um, and we really appreciate it. Come join us at, at our church, Rio Vista Community Church, at 9 and 11 on Sunday morning. Uh, it is a great, great group of believers, a lot of people who love Jesus, and uh, as I've described Rio to other people, we take God very seriously, but we don't take ourselves very seriously at all, and that's the kind of people I want to be around. So come join us, and thank you. Uh, have a great week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash Water.